And now, if you would take out your notes sheet for tonight's sermon, you'll find there the, the question and answer for Lord's Day 49, getting close to the end of the year and through the, our, uh, our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism this year. And just one question again this week, so I'll read that and then we'll all confess the answer together. So question 124, what does the third petition mean? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means help us and all people to renounce our own wills and without any backtalk to obey your will, for it alone is good. Help everyone carry out his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Before we begin, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help tonight. Almighty God, without you, we can do nothing. So we pray that you would illumine today your sacred word by your Holy Spirit, that our minds may be open to receive it, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, Matthew 26, 36 through 46, um, it's a lot of sixes. Uh, that's a, it's a compelling passage of scripture. Uh, the scene, the night... Uh, that Jesus is betrayed. He's in the garden. He asks his disciples to pray with him. And he prays three times over that this cup would pass from him. Here's what Matthew says in those verses. Again, Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Again, this is a compelling passage of Scripture, and we get a glimpse of what Jesus is experiencing the night before uh, he is to die, experience the curse of God on the cross. We know who Jesus is. We know he's, he's truly God and truly man, which means he has both a divine and human nature, and he has both a divine will and a human will. So he has two wills, and we see here in this passage what looks like a tension between his two wills. We, it's clear that he doesn't want to go to the cross, but he knows that this is the Father's will for him. And so we have to ask the question, is, is something wrong here? Or even more poignantly, is it sinful that Christ is desiring not to go to the cross? Well, kids, did Jesus ever sin? No. 
And so that's, that's not what's going on. There's not some kind of glimpse into uh, the inner thoughts of Jesus that reveal his sinful desires. Instead, he's experiencing two holy desires. He's the perfect, obedient son of God. And so, rightly, he desires to be rewarded for his obedience and faithfulness to his father. He desires to be rewarded, not to be cursed on the cross. And yet, he also desires to do the will of his father, which he knows means going to the cross. And so, we see this this tension, but ultimately no sin here in Christ. This tension between two holy desires that both cannot take place. And so, Jesus prays three times as we read, yet not as I will, but as you will. And this sounds a lot like the third petition, which is before us as our topic tonight, thy will be done. And this is, this is a prayer we pray as followers of Christ, but we don't necessarily pray it in the same way that Jesus prayed it in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't pray it as those with a unique mission to redeem the elect of God. Instead, we pray it as the redeemed, chosen people of God. And so we're asking the question tonight, what does it mean for us to pray as Christians, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And the Catechism gives us two answers. It means that we obey God's will uh, revealed in his law, and it also means we're faithful to the callings that we have received in this life. So first, your will be done means help us and all people renounce our own wills and without any back talk to obey your will, for it alone is good. Now we have to answer the question here. Uh, it's not explained in the catechism or in the, in the petition itself. What is God's will in this context? Now, if you were to look for the answer to that question in your Bible, which would be a great place to, to turn and look, you'd find two answers as to what God's will is, or at least two ways of speaking about God's one will. And the first aspect of God's will that we see in Scripture, we could call his will of decree. And as the name suggests, this is his will, uh, everything that he has decreed to happen, that he has declared and determined to take place. Nothing comes to pass in this world that was not planned and decreed by God from eternity. I'll read just a couple verses that talk about God's will in that way, his will of decree. Matthew 10, 29 through 30 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And then Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So God tells us in his word that his will of decree cannot be frustrated. Everything that he has determined will come to pass because he is all eternal and he is almighty. Nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement, as our confession says. The second aspect of God's will we see highlighted in the scriptures, we could call his will of desire. And his will of desire includes everything that he commands of us, everything he demands or instructs us to do and to be. Again, here are just a couple of passages that speak of God's will in this way, his will of desire. Matthew 12, 49 and 50 says, pointing to his disciples, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And 1 John 2, 16 through 17 says, everything in the world 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So we see in these verses and others like them that the will of God can refer to his law. Everything that we've discussed the uh, previous 10 Lord's Days, Lord's Days 34 to 44, and the exposition of the Ten Commandments, you could say that doing God's will is keeping the Ten Commandments. That's not a, a comprehensive statement, but it's true. And in the second sense, God's will of desire, we saw with his will of decree that that will come to pass. But his will of desire can be either regarded by his creatures or disregarded. His will of desire is not the way he ordains things to be, but the way that he commands us to live. And this is the type of will that we're talking about, we're praying about in the Lord's Prayer, God's will of desire, what he commands us to do. I also want to mention one way of talking about God's will that for Christians is not a biblically supported idea. And this one we could call God's guiding will, which is an idea that uh, because we know that God guides all the steps of our lives, this is something we believe, something the scripture teaches us, sometimes we, we think that we should be able to know what those steps are ahead of time, or that God should, if we ask, reveal those things to us ahead of time. But nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to seek that kind of knowledge of God's will. He doesn't promise, promise to tell us which choices to make in any given situation that we come across. Instead, we are told to trust his will of decree, his plan for all things, including us and our lives, and to obey his will of desire. We don't have to know where God is leading us, guiding us, because we know who he is. He's our heavenly father who watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads without his will of decree. And so the point is this, when we pray that God's will be done in the Lord's prayer, we're talking about his will of desire. And as I've said, we could look back to Lord's days 34 through 44 and the Ten Commandments to, to see the details of God's good will that we should be obeying. Another good place to look would be the context of the, the passage we call the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the context of Matthew 5 through 7, your will be done could be taken as your Sermon on the Mount be done. And of course, we know Jesus begins that uh, long teaching, that instruction with blessing, with grace, telling his people all the ways that they are blessed, passage we call the Beatitudes. And then after that, he moves on to several lofty demands to his followers. He, he tells them to love scripture and to live to keep it. Exercise mercy toward your brothers and sisters and even your opponents. Live in sexual purity. Love your spouse deeply and, and be covenantally faithful to him or her. Let your speech be straightforward and honest. Be peacemakers, more eager to uh, be violated again than to strike back in retaliation. Love your enemies. Don't do good deeds for the adulation of people. These are all things that Jesus has just told the crowds who are listening to his preaching to do or not to do. And then he teaches them how to pray. And, and I, for one, I don't know about you, but I'm glad that we're instructed and encouraged to pray that God's 
will be done because this list of things that, that define what it means to live as a part of God's kingdom, these are high, lofty commands. I'm grateful that he instructs us to pray for these things and also teaches us that we should expect his help in doing so because the language of the Lord's prayer is not, may we do your will. Of course, this is the desired outcome um, of this prayer, but it isn't the focus. Instead, we're told to pray that the Father would do his will. We ask that he would cause his will to be done through us. He's the primary agent, the one who is producing in us every good thing that is pleasing to him. So in the third petition, we ask God for his empowerment to forsake our own ideas of what it means to live a good life and instead to help us follow his will of desire that he's revealed to us in his word. And we pray this not only for ourselves, but for all people. St. John Chrysostom put it well when he said that the one who prays this prayer, the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, takes upon himself the care of the whole world. For Jesus did not say, thy will be done in me or in us, but everywhere on the earth. Chrysostom is saying that in a sense, the Lord's Prayer is a universal prayer. It's right for us, of course, to think of our own concerns and our own um, desires and, and, and problems as we pray the third petition, but that can't be all that we think about. Jesus teaches us to pray for the whole world. The two little words on earth remind us that God's plans and his desires and his interests go far beyond what we desire and plan and are interested in. The final words of the petition, as it is in heaven, make us face the facts. They remind us that what we see is not all that exists. The angels and the perfected souls of the dead who are made uh, glorified in Christ exist in an invisible realm, and they engage in obedience, perfect obedience to God. They revere his name and his kingdom and his will in a way that all of his creatures should. And so Jesus is encouraging us to pray that the same would be true in the world that we can see on earth as it is in heaven. They invite us to have faith in God's power to bring about this kind of heavenly obedience on the earth, not perfect, but better. And then the catechism also, uh, as we've seen, it defines this petition of the prayer. It It says that it means that we're asking for God's help in obeying his will, but also it's a petition for vocational fidelity, praying that everyone would carry out their office and calling. In other words, we're asking God to work through us that we might be faithful in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, the doctrine of vocation, which means calling, is a, um, a staple of the Protestant tradition, and more importantly, it's a biblical teaching. Paul's letters to the Thessalonians have uh, relevant verses on this topic. Uh, Paul commands us to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. We should mind our own business and work with our hands. Uh, Paul also says in, in 2 Thessalonians that Christians should work quietly and so provide their own food to eat. These verses are especially relevant to our vocations uh, as uh, people who work, people who need to provide food for ourselves and for our families. But what about those who aren't old enough to work yet, who don't have jobs, or who are retired? And what about all the other callings, uh, positions that we have in our lives besides our jobs? 
Well, Paul gets at these questions in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, and we'll be there for a while if you'd like to turn there and follow along. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, here's what Paul says. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were when God called them. So in this passage, Paul recognizes that there are certain circumstances in our life that we can't control or change. Some things that go beyond our power to influence. And there are other things, circumstances, that we can change. And the point of his teaching here is not as simple as don't change anything that was true about you when you came to faith after you come to faith. Stay exactly the same as you were before. Instead, Paul's main point is that believers can faithfully serve the Lord in any situation they find themselves in. Both in ancient Corinth and in 21st century America, people tend to think of their circumstances, their social positions, their jobs, uh, in terms of self-fulfillment or ranking, social ranking and hierarchy and, and status. And this is wrong, Paul says. He's giving a, a Christ-centered corrective here to how to think about these things, our circumstances and our callings. Verse 17 tells us that God is the one who distributes gifts to his creatures and the one who puts us in certain positions and situations. And this is uh, true of all churches, not just Corinth. And then in verses 18 and 19, Paul brings up uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, and he says that Jews should not try to hide their Jewishness to gain access to uh, higher up Gentiles. Uh, in other words, they shouldn't pretend not to be Jews in order to uh, get these connections with influential Gentiles who can boost their social status or provide valuable business connections for them. And then likewise, Gentiles shouldn't be circumcised thinking that that procedure will make them better Christians. That's not something that God has commanded for his new covenant people. And then verses 20 through 24 have caused a lot of discussion, of course, with the issue of slavery, and that, that is an important discussion, but it's not one that we have time to dig into tonight. The bottom line in verses 20 through 24 for our topic is this, even freedom is not an essential aspect for the Christian life. Both slavery and freedom bring about opportunities for the kind of loving service that the Lord calls his people to. Paul's saying, don't use the negative situation you're in, slavery being an example of a truly terrible circumstance, don't use those things as an excuse not to serve the Lord. Don't wait until things are better to obey him. Ultimately, Paul says, all Christians are both free and slaves in Christ. 
Because Jesus bought us with his blood, we're free from the tyranny of sin and death. And at the same time, because Christ purchased us, we are not our own. He's taken responsibility for us as our master. And so in this sense, all Christians are slaves of Christ. We're under his care and his protection. And so friends, whatever providence God sends your way, wherever you find yourself in earthly social terms, you can rejoice both in being free from the power of sin and death and belonging to Christ. Every situation offers opportunities to serve the Lord. So as you make decisions about those things in life that you can change, remember to consider first how you might serve him in loving service rather than how you might promote yourself or fulfill your own desires. And as you look at the situations of others in this congregation or who you work with or who you know, don't fall into the temptation to envy them. We can easily imagine that the slaves Paul wrote to felt this temptation, but even they, Paul says, have reason to rejoice because their true master is Christ in heaven. On the other hand, a free person has no reason to be proud of himself or herself for being free. God is the one who put him or her in that position. We're not independent creatures. We don't owe gratitude to ourselves for such a great job we did with our lives. We belong to God, and we owe all of our gratitude to him, the one who bought us and redeemed us. So even though it's difficult, Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth and us to strive for contentment in all circumstances. The Catechism speaks of our offices and our callings, which includes more than just our jobs. Vocation includes who you are and where you are. It includes your identity as a, as a father or mother, a brother, sister, a child, a cousin. It includes where you live and who you know. And so when we say, thy will be done on earth, we're praying for the strength to do what Paul has encouraged the Corinthians to do, to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you in. Kids, you're praying that you would be helped to be a good student and a good child to your parents and a good brother or sister to your siblings and a good friend to your friends. Adults, whether you work for the city or a company or yourself, or whether you don't work, you're praying that you would do everything as unto the Lord for his glory. The third petition means pleading that the Holy Spirit would work in us, again, that which is pleasing in our Father's sight through the Lord Jesus Christ, which includes our obedience to God's commands and our faithfulness to our callings in this life. Like the earlier parts of the Lord's Prayer, this third petition concerns our sanctification, the process in which the Holy Spirit causes us to grow in holiness and righteousness and, and virtue, the fruits of the Spirit. And as we strive for holiness, there are some questions, I think, that we can ask, our, ask ourselves tonight regarding this third petition and this issue of the Lord's will, submitting to his will. In what areas of your life is it easy to pray, thy will be done? And where is that hard to pray? Maybe you can pray it easily about your job, but not your family. Or maybe you can pray it about your words and how you speak, but not your money and how you earn it or spend it. Second, where is your preoccupation with your own will overshadowing your concern for God's will, what he has revealed his desire is for your life? 
Thy will be done is not a triumphalistic or a perfectionistic prayer. That is, we're not asking God's kingdom to fully come now before Christ returns. And we're also not asking to be made sinless before we die and he glorifies us. We trust that God's will of decree, everything he has planned from eternity past, we trust that that includes our salvation and every aspect of it, including when and where and how we are made more like Christ. Instead, as we pray, thy will be done, we join our voices with the Lord Jesus, who prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not as I will, but as you will. And so, may we be more and more conformed to his image, the image of our beautiful and holy and righteous Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as God answers our prayer in this third petition. Let's pray to him now. O God of our Lord Jesus Christ and Father of glory, thank you for teaching us how to pray through the earthly example and instruction of your incarnate Son. Please give us spiritual wisdom and insight so that we might grow in our knowledge of you. We ask that you would flood our hearts with light so that we might understand the confident hope you have given to those you've called. We, your holy people, who are your rich and glorious inheritance, may we understand the incredible greatness of your power for we who believe Christ. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to forsake our own wills and to obey your will. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would take out the liturgy sheet for tonight, once again, we'll transition now to